Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of the Geopolitical Pickle Interviews. Following our update on the war in Ukraine, we wanted to dive further in how did Western countries start their support to Kiev. And for that, we talked with Thomas Kopechny, Deputy Minister for Industrial Cooperation in the Defense Ministry of the Czech Republic. We asked him about the Western support to Kiev, how did it start and developed, as well as the lessons that this war is teaching with regards to defense production, the impact and scope of the use of drones, and the geopolitical consequences that the war may bring to other parts of the world. As always, to maybe give you ideas of career development, we also asked him about his path and what did he do to end up holding such position in the Czech government. So, good evening and welcome to the Geopolitical Pickle. Tonight with us we have the Deputy Minister of Defence for the Czech Republic, Tomáš Kopečny. So first of all, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, I just wanted to go into your background. So obviously, as a Deputy Minister of Defence, what does that involve? Like, what do you do there at the Ministry? Well, I have, I have a specific responsibility. So I'm a Deputy Minister for Industrial Cooperation. It means that I take care of all the support our defence industry gets abroad mm-hmm. uh, on their export activities. At the same time, I take care of uh, wargaming exercises that do involve strategic industries, not only the defense ones, but uh, primarily the defense companies. Um, I take care of all the military research and development, all the military technology technologies development. Mm-hmm. And um, last but not least, I also do some analytical part on, I mean, when I say I, I mean my team, <clears throat> but I oversee the work of all these many people that do it. Um, and what I do is that uh, in my portfolio is uh, <clears throat> the so-called localization. So when we, as the Czech Ministry of Defense, buy something from abroad, like new infantry fighting vehicles, so I make sure that there is as much of local Czech content as possible through <clears throat> actually making um, <clears throat> the company involve uh, Czech, Czech industries, industries in either the production line or of the of the concrete project uh, or in the say global supply chains. So like logistics also and stuff like this would be. Yeah, and joint R and D projects, yeah. and also I do have um, uh, like most most of the bulk of my work and most of my time I used to spend. Um, say abroad or working on foreign markets mm. because more than 90% of the Czech defense industry actually goes for export. Mm-hmm. So this is the most important part which makes the Czech defense industry thrive. And lately for the past eight months I've been um, supplying Ukraine with weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, precisely we want to touch a little bit upon that. Um, what has been uh, your role with the Czech Republic uh, within NATO countries. Have you had to, uh, has the Czech Republic, obviously a little bit because of your role personalizing you, but has the Czech Republic has some sort of talkings with NATO countries for, uh, trying to increase the, the supply going to Ukraine or um, how or the deliveries, for example, has it been, what has been more or less the role in that sense? Well, we had been um, the ones who kept pushing all our allied and partners to do more from the very beginning because we were one of the first countries <clears throat> to start delivering right after the outbreak of the war. Mm. 
all kinds of material, all types of heavy weapons. So in many of the very often discussed uh, types of weapon systems, <clears throat> the Czech Republic was the first uh, to deliver the, the concrete types of weapons that we do not specify publicly, um, but we just shipped them there uh, already within the first few days. <clears throat> uh, not from the stocks of the Czech army, but mostly on a say commercial contractual basis because we were me and my team we were preparing uh, our Czech defense industry for the outbreak of the war for some time so we were putting together all the data about what we do have what we could start producing mm. and <clears throat> when the Russians really attacked Ukraine uh, we plugged it in and it was super chaotic and super dark and um, difficult from the standpoint of the organization as, as also say the psychology but um, but we created a system that started working on, on the third day and we started throwing in um, the material in Ukraine on the fifth day uh, right after the, the, the beginning of the war I also started a crowdfunding campaign for this purpose because usually governmental bureaucracies are slower so we started fundraising money for the account of the Ukrainian embassy in Prague which then we um, worked with as a fund basis for us respectively the Ukrainians and us contracting those weapons that the Ukrainians needed the mm. most and we shipped it there immediately so <clears throat> really in the first days it was the Czech people and also some other um, nationalities or some other members of other nationalities that financed the, the first deliveries of, of these heavy weapons to Ukraine. And how has this changed the, as the conflict starts process? Now we are eight months in the in the conflict. Um, is it better the communication that you may have with other partners in, in the logistic part? Has it evolved positively or is it still a bit of a mess? It is evolving all the time. <clears throat> Now, the, the hard part was really creating the system that worked and it took us a few days and ever since, you know, we're just rolling in and doing more and more by every week. Um, what changed dramatically was the approach or attitude of <clears throat> also the other countries, especially the Western powers. Mm. The key moment was when um, the US government and <clears throat> Congress decided to start seriously helping Ukraine with deliveries of <clears throat> military material because that of course changed uh, drastically the, the total volume <clears throat> what we were delivering was fast needed but in terms of the total volume um, we are now at like 1.9 billion euros worth of deliveries and it's very important um, and it's, by the way, double of what the Czech defense industry ever exported in a single given year. Mm. But compared to what the American government uh, can do and what they did, <clears throat> and we're, we're in the same league, like basically... As percentage of GDP or... Well, I guess we're higher in percentage of GDP, mm. but um, we're in the same league like all the other major donors or providers providers of weapons because it's not always donations mm -hmm. like Poland or the UK 
the UK is bigger uh, a bit, <clears throat> but it's it's say the same league, the same order of magnitude. Mm-hmm. The Americans are one order above us. So what changed crucially was that the Americans and also the Brits started moving um, the material in Ukraine on mass scale. And then also followed by other countries. Even France, after its hesitation, started delivering. You know, Italy now just, you know, like today or yesterday announced a new, like, substantial package. <clears throat> Even Germany started to move on this front. <clears throat> they didn't throw all in. Uh, especially the problem is that they didn't throw in all the potential, not all the, the material from its stocks. We didn't throw in a lot from our stock either. Mm. What we did was that we started mobilizing our industry uh, and just dedicating it solely on Ukraine. If France and Germany did that, it will also make a huge, substantial change. Do you see like the current counter counteroffensive that Ukraine's managed to um, succeed with, I guess, in the east and the south? Do you see that as being a good rallying point to use as a demonstration to other countries about really what the power of the Western arms are able to achieve there with a much smaller population, obviously. Absolutely. I believe it mentally convinced many in the, um, say, broader security circles in these countries that it's not... Um, it's not a waste of energy and money mm. that Ukraine has a chance to use it effectively. Uh, because to the surprise of basically all of us, <clears throat> the Czechs, the Americans, the Brits, the French, what they do with the weapons and weapon systems they get is just incredible. Like Within, say, the scope of a single set of the systems, but also in combination, it's incredible. It's completely rewriting all the manuals and, and doctrines uh, that we were learning for the past 30 years precisely regarding with the with the doctrines now we're seeing uh, with the war i mean uh, they've been there for for a while already that are drones and the use of uh, of uh, unmanned uh, vehicles also surface vehicles as uh, we saw recently um are these drones entering the industry and shaping it also are they changing how the industry is focused or um are they just going to be Apart, are they just going to be a complement, or is it the industry properly focusing in it? Because we're seeing the the cheaper Iranian drones, we're seeing that they're they're targeting civilian and uh, energy infrastructure uh, effectively because there is not the it's not that easy to to properly defend against them. Um, again, in uh, in uh, with the surface ones that they surface uh, at sea, the Ukrainian ones have used uh, and released some footage. Do you think that is going to change the industry in itself, and it's going to turn into something more um, where the foot troops or like the, the individuals are not going to be that much important, and it's going to go into these uh, unmanned uh, vehicles and systems? It will definitely be complementary to the main <clears throat> war efforts that we are seeing daily on the front lines, which involves on mass scale infantry. And you can see at the front lines when the operations are successful that there was a breach of the mechanized uh, divisions on the say defender side. So 
infantry will be crucial, artillery will, will keep being the most crucial, heavy mechanized um, units will be crucial. But also, you know, the biggest difference in the operations between how what, what the Ukrainians are successful at and what the Russians are not is the combination of the different types of forces. Mm. You can see air forces that are completely useless when they do not have complete air superiority on behalf of Russia. <clears throat> you, you can see an industry of Russia that is useless for the war effort with all its supersonic jets just because there is no real integration or no real capability in the integration of these forces with the EDW, the Electronic Warfare Units, um, that it doesn't really work even on the level of a command and control, which is incredible, um, <clears throat> and that they do not provide any useful support for the ground forces. So it's, <clears throat> it's quite surprising to see such a failure on a mass scale. Um, what the Ukrainians are also to the surprise of many greatly capable of is not only the integration of different <clears throat> technologies or weapon systems from different countries, um, but also f from the tactical standpoint, um, the usage of <clears throat> drones in combination with, with other types of um, vehicles, systems, or to put it more generally, ta military tactics. So what we see as a success on the Russian side is the use of the loitering ammunition or suicide drones of Iranian providence. <clears throat> but they operate separately from everything else. Mm. They're independent. So it's, not like a, it's not like a, um, coordinated as you were strategy. saying, a coordinated strategy. It's more like you fly the drones instead of like having a proper... Yeah, it's, it's another part of the artillery capabilities of the Russian letter mm. now. So of course you have short-range artillery, howitzers, then you have long-range artillery, missiles. Now, these suicide drones or loitering ammunition, <clears throat> they do qualify in the longer or long-range artillery. So they are basically an artillery instrument. Mm -hmm. um, they do not provide so far any greater advantage than, than this. It is very useful for killing civilians, targeting playgrounds, uh, which is what Russians are using them for and also for targeting critical infrastructure. Um, the Russians are not dumb. They are just using tactics that were deemed to be um, <clears throat> inconceivable with the modern world order mm. in terms of international law, uh, ethics, basic standards of conducting war, basically using its most expensive and most useful and successful weapons only, only for civilian targets is something that um, is again a little surprising and also a show of desperation that they are not able to use it successfully on military targets. It's happening, it has some effect, though not the one that um, would change the battlefield. It's, as we can see in the past few weeks, it's actually from a very cynical and sadistical point of view, boosting the morale of the Russian population, which is enthusiastic about civilian targets in Kiev being destroyed and hit. So it serves a purpose, not a military one, but say 
justification of you know, all the all the losses, all the thousands and thousands of dead, new dead soldiers um, and seriously wounded people, even more, um, that that didn't think that they would have nothing to do with the military just a few weeks ago. So, <clears throat> to sum it up, UAVs are changing the battlefield. Uh, each of the sites is using using them very differently, and the industry is adapting to it. Mm. Uh, what we are observing, though, is not only that the industry is adapting to it, also the research, the whole research environment is now focusing on what it can do to use the existing UAV infrastructure or UAV research for military purposes, especially in Ukraine. All the universities that were previously studying something else related to, to technologies or technical stuff are now focusing on how it can be used by the Ukrainian armed forces. Or armed forces. Um, I have an example also from the Czech Republic. We had a Czech uh, University of Life Sciences and um, they developed stuff for agriculture. So they had developed this quadrocopter for seeds, for you know seeding a mm. field. Now they just modified it based on our discussions and also our say lessons learned we got from our Ukrainian friends. So they, they modified it and are, they are now certifying a quadrocopter, not for carrying seeds, but, but mortar grenades. Mm -hmm. Precisely with that, um, because one of the characteristics of these kamikaze dro uh, Iranian drones is uh, how cheap they are. Um, is there any country, is there any industry right now that is uh, able to provide or that is providing something that would be on the on that level of, uh, in the end, what you were mentioning also before, these long-range missiles, for example, yes, they are highly technological and everything, but they are really expensive. And uh, lowering the costs of the production of these drones could be a way of, uh, of providing more. Um, is this uh, being... Or, you know, is this is being worked on or is it not uh, uh, something that Western countries are, are right now working with? In general, Western countries had not been producing long-range artillery for decades. Mm. <clears throat> like, they have just not been focusing on it. Mm -hmm. With the exception of the maintenance of these capabilities from the United States, you know, <clears throat> we do not have any other Western country that, that would think of it even like a few years ago, mm -hmm. uh, even a few months ago. Um, so what, of course, we still do have some capability, I mean, as a NATO, also on European soil, there are a few rockets but. in France, in Britain. But let's look at Libya in 2011, for instance. So Sarkozy, called Obama to tell him, you know, our fighter jets are in the air. Will you support us? We're doing it anyway. Tough call. Support was granted. In three days, there was no ammunition left mm -hmm. on the European side. Mm. The Brits, the French. <clears throat> I'm not even talking about Germans, of course. <laughs> Germans actually have had that problem now that they were running out of ammunition. Yeah. Now, there is just not a European capability to... There was not, and there is not even now, <clears throat> to have um, strong enough or big enough arsenal for this. Uh, and also the production sites 
have been say under uh, underdeveloped and um, under researched and simply mm, there was a lack of interest in this mm. also in in the military thinking in the in the in the conceptual thinking so what still can be done is to create new production lines for this uh, loitering ammunition is a new is not a new phenomenon it's something that is already in the conceptions in nato and even even in the czech republic in many other countries as well the key thing is the scale of the production mm. um, on the russian side the very reason why they are using iranian drones is that they do not have strong production capability they their strongest advantage is that they have been storing for decades and preparing for at least last decade mm-hmm. uh, huge amounts of ammunition huge amounts of weapon systems artillery tanks large caliber ammo and missile systems but their regeneration capacity is almost non-existent mm. meaning they are not able to produce um I don't want to compare it like on a two concrete terms, but they are not able to produce what they use per day in several months or even a year. So, uh, depending on the on the tech- technology or de- depending on the weapon system. So this is uh, something that plays in hand of the attrition warfare, which is the stage that we are at now uh, for Ukrainians. And the adaptation of the of the industries is something that we will of course see. Um, in general, the European defense industrial capabilities are limited in especially the loitering ammunition area. That's true. Um, but um, what I'm seeing, especially in the Czech Republic, in the other areas with which we have been supplying Ukraine since the beginning of the war, what happened was that all the production just started to increase and therefore you know new production lines are being built new investments are being done so that not only we know that there will be business for the next three five years we already now are increasing the production capacity so you, you can see the same thing happening then for uavs throughout czech republic and then more widely through the eu i think through nato countries i mean what's america's capability for this already i know they has recently assassinated Ayman al-Zawahiri, leader of Al-Qaeda, mm-hmm. in using a uh, precision drone, I think. Basically, they could hit him on his balcony. Mm-hmm. So obviously, they have some sort of high-technology uh, kamikaze drones, I think. But do you think it's definitely a growth area for the future within NATO countries? Absolutely. As well as all the other weapon systems and technologies that are successful in Ukraine everybody's looking at them now mm. like every single military academy every single university of defense and every single say designer or developer in weapon companies or defense companies is now looking at what is useful and what is not what works and what doesn't and investments in these areas will follow and do already happen the United States is, of course, capable of supplying, but it's also a question of scale mm. of the production. Just to give an example with the javelins, 
Yeah. So Javelins, you have a same Javelin eShop and the whole organization because they were so crucial. But then even President Biden visited the company. What did he saw? Create production line. But how many pieces do they produce a year? 1,200. I mean, it's been used and shot within the first few weeks. Mm. So again, it needs to be increased and increased and increased. And in that matter, um, because you've uh, traveled, talked uh, with uh, countries that are obviously not just uh, within the Western sphere, um, how do you see uh, all these developments are going to affect uh, the industries and the perceptions of uh, countries in Middle East, in Africa, uh, Russian technology and arm and arm systems? They were really famous in in uh, many many conflicts all around the world, um, and also the support or 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 uh, non condemnation of these countries to Russia was also partly due to these agreements that it's got. How do you see that's going to affect Africa, Middle East, or countries in Asia that they may have these ties uh, previously industrial and uh, that develop into, into uh, diplomatic ones? Mm. You know, the, the biggest spender by far <clears throat> in defense is the United States of America. Mm. I don't know, 800, 900 million, depending on the year. Sorry, 800, 900 billion dollars, <laughs> yes, depending on the year. Um, China is about 250, more or less. Then, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then Russia is like, sometimes, some year they claim 55, some year they claim 62 billion. Like, their defense spending for the whole decade that they were even preparing for this war is less than what the US spends in Korea. one single year. Mm. <clears throat> At the same time though, for the past three decades even, and of course during Soviet times it was stronger, but it was a different economy and so on. But for the past three decades, Russia and Russian defense industry has always been the second biggest exporter of weapons in the world. So the US <clears throat> had like I don't know, 35, 40% of the world market. Russia had like 20, 25. Huge numbers. Mm. And then small Germany, you know, <clears throat> I don't know, 3, 4%. Um, this geopolitical strategic reality in terms of dependence on powers will end. Mm. And I'm certain of it. So it will go more to like smaller uh, productions, so to say. Or diversified. Or diversified. It can, of course, lead to huge regional geopolitical shakeups. Because if country A is relying on Russian weapons to arrive next year, and they will not arrive, and country B is relying on another supplier, and they are in strategic competition, it can be an incentive for country B to take some actions because the say deterrence will be <clears throat> off the balance. Mm -hmm. And this can be happening all over the world. Already now we, we are seeing growing tensions and that already means something when we see growing tensions between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Like countries are getting so much closer to go into an act active conflict because for many reasons, because they can see that uh, the, the big powers are preoccupied mm. with Ukraine. At the same time, 
that will be this technical material reality. We have seen that you know the Indian army shipped its Russian tanks, the tanks they bought from Russia, for maintenance and overhauls. The next week they appeared in Ukraine because Russia just doesn't have where to get them from. Mm. So <clears throat> this is a serious problem for everything that will be sold in the future, but also <clears throat> for all the things that have, had been sold for the past decades for the maintenance repairs overhauls. Every country who is serious about the defense and is relying on Russia is now thinking, how do I get out of it? Yeah, I'm actually thinking in a couple of examples right now also. Um, raising tensions between Morocco and Algeria, for example. Russia is, a re- is a, the major supplier for Algeria and the United States is the major supplier for Morocco. So, and I think like more generally, as a fallout to this, it could cripple Russia's defense industry going forward and their arms industry because they've been proven to be quite ineffective on the battlefield when compared to the competition's weapons. It's true that they do fail in their in their ambitions and goals. I'm not certain it's the fault of the the actual the actual the weapons systems and the, mm-hmm. the the military material. Mm-hmm. Um, when when um, the Kharkiv region was liberated, on the run out of there, the Russians left a huge amount of mm. technique of, of military material, of tanks, of IFVs. It serves well in the Ukrainian hands. I mean, it's not a problem of the tank. Mm. It's really a problem on the... The training. Uh, on the strategic command mm. and operational command level, <clears throat> on how to use the technique. But, so, so it's not that people would think, oh, so it doesn't work that well. Secondarily, yes, because the insides is not that effective. But the biggest problem is that Russia will just not be capable of producing that amount of military technology anymore. Mm. And this will affect the world. We will see the statistics, but it's just unimaginable that with it, the contracts are for long term. Mm-hmm. So we will not see that you know they will go from 25% to 10% next year. Mm-hmm. But in two, three years, of course, if they will not be fulfilling the contracts, it can happen sooner. Um, but in two, three years, it will just drastically change <clears throat> uh, the balances of power everywhere that Russia has been supplying. No, just on current technologies, I've seen some anti-drone technologies getting a lot of publicity now. I think the vampire, the US vampire systems, um, they, I think that must be another growth area for sure. Because at the moment, I don't know what is the defense strategy. Can you use traditional anti-aircraft um, batteries to shoot down these drones? Or is it a separate system altogether? Yes. <clears throat> you can even use, if I put it in absurdum, you can use a normal rifle if it's connected somehow through a smart way to the system of um, the, of course, command and control systems, so that it works throughout, but from the fire control system. Because if it's well integrated, it's not the anti-aircraft systems are 
not primarily run and operated on say a human instinct level mm. they are operated based on data that are integrated somewhere evaluated and <clears throat> then um, a decision is done on a machine level all this process you know, is on an AI level yeah so regardless of whether it's a laser beam or say 60 year old anti-aircraft weapon of a certain caliber 12.7 even whatever or if it's a missile it all depends on the same thing on the evaluation of the trajectory of the projectile <clears throat> and uh, it's prediction of yeah. the future um, path of the projectile and the ejection of your own counter projectile yes, so it's all on the yeah so it's really and this is this is the important thing and the most m- most valuable thing about the the new developments it's about the the understanding and speed of the of the ai in in these systems will it have be uh because you were mentioning the incapacity of russia to to replenish its uh its um store and right now we're facing winter uh, probably the conflict will will be at least in the in the battlefield in itself will get stagnated a little bit is there um will russia have a capacity to replenish its troops during the winter in a way that they could actually then in spring go on the counteroffensive, or is it something that it's not uh, really, really possible? It is possible, it is probable. The question that matters is how will these troops be equipped and integrated in the operational command? They can throw in waves of human bodies and somewhere they are doing it. It will change little, the conditions on the battlefield. The success of this mobilization really depends on how the Russians will be able to make these newly mobilized men into soldiers and these soldiers into military units and these military units into a functioning army. Uh, yeah, I would have loved to touch on North Korea yes, and Chinese arms industries, but I think we're running short of time tonight. But yeah, we can follow up. Right. Exactly, I think that's definitely a topic for we can talk. Sorry, North, North Korean defense industries. Yeah, selling to in selling to Russia. That is something. Oh yeah, well, this is something that could happen, but. And I mean, they're, mm. they're also escalating tensions right now with South Korea, for well, sure. They've just fired several dozens of just, just today, missiles. I think there's three, yeah. three missiles, that one of them lands in South Korean territorial waters for the first time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's a whole other... I don't think that they will want to give away what they have been preparing for such a long time when they feel, as well as the Iranians against the Saudis, exactly. that somebody is not watching. So it's, mm. you know? it's a more confident time maybe for these people yeah. to start a conflict. Precisely. So that's why I think that's another interesting topic for the future, for sure. And we'll have to get you back on maybe next early next year or something. But For season two. For season, season two. two. Exactly. Great, great. We can talk about the structure of the Korean defense industry. Exactly. Um, but yeah. the last question, which we always like to ask people, um, is about your career path. Uh, how did you end up working for the Ministry of Defense? Uh, what were your interests and fields of study? And what was sort of the path which led you to where you are now? And, mm. and any, any potential ideas for the future? I've been 
working and stuck at the Ministry of Defense <laughs> for almost a decade now, which sounds crazy to me when I say it. Um, I was studying at Charles University. <clears throat> I was studying philosophy, like pure philosophy, um, and also international relations on two universities, but I'm oh, sorry, on two faculties of Charles University, <clears throat> two programs. And then I guess it really started with the student exchange. I went to Canada, to Montreal, to McGill University. McGill is an amazing university. And I started doing an internship that actually lasted two years for Romeo Dallaire, who is a Canadian general, who was a hero for saving tens of thousands of people in Rwanda by not following orders from the UN, <clears throat> despite being the UN peacekeeping troops commander. And basically what happened was that I started to be very, very interested in Africa. Mm -hmm. I was working for two years for on media monitoring in Nigerian media so that we could catch some potential for the development of a serious crisis or genocide, because it was called the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. Mm -hmm. So every week I was sitting over Nigerian media and following whatever was happening, if there was some tensions rising or potential for something bigger. Then I started also um, yeah, to be more and more interested in diplomacy and international relations sort of lead to that. What happened was that I was still studying my philosophy and my IR and bachelors and I just applied to NATO international stuff and they chose me um, and I thought wow that's that's cool NATO <laughs> um, I was like 22 um, and I thought yeah, I still had some time in between and I, I basically fulfilled all my credits back then so I didn't have to go to school anymore so much um, so I just applied I, I literally wrote to like three ministries <clears throat> saying you know I'm actually interested in Africa I'm doing Africa and it's only for several months because I'm going to NATO. And I got a reply from the Minister of Defense that like Mali was happening at the time and nobody knew where Africa was sort of. <laughs> uh, or that's Has that Af changed? Has that changed? In the, in the <laughs> most, most people thought that Africa was a country, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> I explained that there are more countries in Africa than it. <laughs> And they said, wow, that's, that's, you, you must be an expert, so <laughs> please come in. <laughs> please come in. You know that there's, there's, several, lang there's several languages. <laughs> uh, and oh, but there was uh, just one another person who was also working on Africa. She was a desk officer, uh, a great clever girl, but also she was basically her responsibility were Latin America, um, Africa and half of Asia so obviously there was not no room for more detailed focus mm -hmm. um, and so I was an advisor for Africa for some time then I went to NATO and it also of course changed me somewhat to from the strategic standpoint because I started to understand these processes like what is important for the alliance how this work the processes in terms of decision making and then and I was still studying during this time um, and then I came back and, I, and, and the people at the Ministry of Defense already sort of knew about me and they asked me to come back. So that's why I didn't go for a contract in NATO, plus family reasons. And um, 
Then I said, okay, I, I can still work on Africa. I liked it. Um, and they said, yeah, but the world is bigger than that. Uh, why don't you take care of the whole world? Uh, and I was like, yeah, it's too big, but okay. Uh, and basically it was the time when there was a new, brand new division being created. Mm-hmm revolutionary that there will be a defense industrial cooperation division at the ministry of defense and at the time like speaking to defense industries was something very shady and almost forbidden and now there would be an element in the ministry that would speak to them officially mm-hmm. that, that that was very um mysterious for many people mm-hmm. and so i was building i mean i was not, not the leader at the time i was a desk officer then I was promoted, head of unit, promoted director of department, promote, and then promoted to the deputy minister. Um, so, but I was building the system from the very beginning for the defense industrial cooperation. Um, and that's where I ended up with. And for the past six years, I was teaching this class because it was so fascinating to me. You know, I was going, going all around the world and I was seeing the stuff that I, I was only being taught in the university from the very theoretical standpoint, mm-hmm. usually from people who had never no experiences from um, from the business world. And I don't mean the teachers, I mean the, the, the writers yeah. who yeah. just write about these things from some yeah, sort yeah, of an ivory yeah, tower. Yeah, 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 yeah. And <clears throat> now I saw how things are being moved on the highest level mm. that, you know, <clears throat> when there was a mission to Africa, America, Asia, Europe, and there was a defense industry interest, we were seeing the presidents, mm-hmm. the prime ministers, the ministers all the time, because that's that's what they care about. Mm-hmm. I mean, if there was a mission with agriculture products, they had they had to join us so that they would get in the room, of course, <laughs> literally. Yeah, especially in countries where agriculture is basically owned and controlled by the military. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was super interesting to see how creative and formative um, is defense industry in terms of geopolitics. So I started teaching this class on geopolitics of defense industry or geopolitics of defense industry and arms trade. Um, yeah, and it's, it's fun. I learn every day something new um, so fr- from, from students. So wait, because you didn't, you didn't finish saying, you, the last time you said, I kept on studying. Did you finish it? Did you finish it in the end? Yeah, yeah I mean, oh, okay. not your PhD. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't finish my PhD. Not yes, not yet. Not yet. Uh, I have it paused for like eight years now. Okay. Okay, I, okay. I, I had my small Czech doctorate, uh, <laughs> which is like an anomaly, but I finished my, my master's studies uh, basically right after I came back from NATO. Mm-hmm. So I was 24 or so. And since I was working on, uh, on full time, uh, which I did even before, but now and for the future, I plan to do again something bigger. Mm-hmm. Like I get familiar with the whole world of defense industries of every single big American, European, even other countries' companies, um, and yeah. Um, now I would like to, in the upcoming months, I would definitely like to focus more on helping Ukraine. Um, from I will follow up on, on, the, on the military help, but also I will like to broaden it a bit. And then I'm super interested in emerging technologies. 
mm. in the investments into you know biotechnologies and space and all this stuff and connect it with some good cause yeah mm-hmm. like protection of wildlife in Africa or rainforests and because that's where I see the future that's where I see the merger between the latest technologies that are needed and used by the military as well and something that could revolutionize not only the battlefield but especially the protection of what we could lose I think that's uh, that's an awesome ending for the <laughs> for the interview uh, thank you very much thank you very much Tomas Kovacci for being in the geopolitical pickle and for all of you listening thank you very much for staying with us and we'll come next week with uh, more interviews with more debates welcome to the geopolitical pickle thank, thank you. you very much Thanks for tuning in to your political pickle. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to seeing you next time. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for more behind the scenes content. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Thank you and see you next week. 